The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. We've been talking about uh, for several weeks now in the book of 1 Peter how Christianity is a new way of living. It's a new way of living in the world with our allegiance to Christ and fully engaged in the world around us. Uh, whether that culture is ungodly, uh, immoral, uh, hostile to uh, our beliefs, we are called with, to have our allegiance to Jesus and engaged in the lives of the people around us. It's a new way of living because all areas of life are slowly being transformed by Christ who is working out his, his life and his image through us. Maybe you've seen this in your own experience. Uh, when we begin a relationship with Jesus, uh, we begin to mature in this relationship. We begin to grow in things. And there start to be things in our life that, that we feel that God is wanting to address. And we didn't think that maybe that issue was a, a problem in our life, but God confronts it in our life. For me, I noticed this in a huge way. Uh, when I, when I, in the early times when I was a baby Christian, uh, after my freshman year in college, the way that God first showed me how he was going to change me had to do with my temper. I was a very angry young man. I was a, very, uh, I was a man that had a very uh, just short fuse. And I lost my temper so often. I was an angry person all the time. And it was one of the most notable t- things and early things in my life that God said, this is what I'm going to change. And it was one of the first things that I saw really go from my life and actually uh, grow in and become more like Jesus was a, a more gentle spirit about how people treated me and how I felt just about the world around me. And it wasn't that I should just be a better person and be a, not an angry person or not lose my temper because I was a Christian. It wasn't like, you're a Christian and so change your life and, and be better. It wasn't just about behavior change, but it was about following Jesus began to transform how I thought about myself and my emotions and about the world around me and and people in my life. I love Jesus, and and I don't love the way I'm feeling right now, and so God, change this part of me. Help me to be more like you. And then I begin to allow God to transform my emotions as I read through his word and submit myself to God, and my anger... uh, is changed, and I demonstrate trust in him for who he is and what he has done for me. Can you recall a time for yourself, maybe, maybe something right now in your life you feel that God is uniquely just touching on, that is a point of tension that you're really struggling with? Maybe if you became a believer later in life, what was that thing that, that really changed pretty early? What was that first thing that started to change? Uh, maybe it was your speech and how you spoke and the, the words that you used and um, maybe you became, uh, maybe it was your, your lack of generosity and, and God all of a sudden gave you this desire to be generous with all that you had. Maybe it was your self-centeredness and, and God was showing you, here is where I want to make you more like Jesus and less like you. And he was exposing your need for him and he was exposing your pride and your self-centeredness. Whatever that is, we all have those things. Well, the point is, is that throughout the life of the Christian, God continually shows us things that we need to submit to him Uh, and under his care. And it's not by accident because God's agenda for us in our life is that we would be more like Jesus. And so as we grow as a Christian, he will continue to reveal things in our life that need to be brought under submission to his will. Peter shows us, and he has been for the last two weeks, very intentionally, that your social relationships will change because you follow Jesus. 
Social relationships are going to be transformed by knowing and trusting in the gospel of Christ. And as we mature in our faith, you know what will happen as we mature, or what should happen? The scope of God's fingerprints on the details of our life are going to broaden. He's going to keep going deeper and deeper into our life and into the details of our life. It's where we realize nothing is mundane. Nothing is without cause. Nothing is aside from what God wants to transform in my life. And you see where Peter's argument is going in the flow of his letter. He says, trusting in Jesus is going to transform how you relate to your government leaders. How you relate to the president, how you relate to the police officers, how you relate to city council. You will be transformed in how you relate to them. And then he goes on and says, trusting in Jesus is going to change and transform how you relate to your earthly masters in the forms of your bosses and colleagues and those who, who God has placed in your life to have guidance and authority for you. And now, let me encourage you to allow God's word permission in your life to transform how you relate to your, your spouse. And you might be thinking, well, this is getting too close to home. That area, that's like, I get the religion, I get Christianity, I'll be a better person in my conduct and in my, as a witness in my neighborhoods and in my school and my workplace, and okay, I will, I will respect my authorities, but, but leave my spouse alone. Leave, leave my husband alone, leave my wife alone and our conduct. That's, a, that's an issue, that's a private issue. Trusting in Jesus will transform, ladies, how you relate to your husband. Trusting in Jesus, men, will change how you relate to your wife. All of this is not merely behavioral change, as we said, because you're a Christian. Do this because you're a Christian and you want to be a better person. But it's a new way of living in our world, demonstrating that we are people that have a new hope. We've been born again to a living hope that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. And because of that hope, we, re we react to people differently and we treat people differently. And so today, we're actually just going to look at the wives. And, and next week, we're going to take the husbands. And so Peter says that this hope that we have for, from Christ is imperishable. It's undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven. And if we believe this, your marriage will change. If you really believe in Christ and trust in him for the hope of your eternal life and also the hope of your temporal life today, your marriage cannot stay the same. And so this morning we'll look at this passage dedicated to Christian wives. And the role of a wife, the role of a wife has been given this distinct role in the marriage that they have this unique opportunity to display the gospel in their home and to a watching world that a husband does not have. The chapter begins, wives, submit to your husbands. Submit to your own husbands. And we remind you before that to be subject to is to willfully arrange and order your life under the authority and guidance of your husband whom God has placed in your life. And before we go too far, I want to I tell you how, you know, as I've been studying this passage and, and how this has affected me this week. One, it has caused me to look at my wife differently. It has caused me to appreciate her God-given role and unique opportunity to display the gospel truth in a way that I cannot. 
It has also, second, it has caused me to look at you, my sisters in Christ, in a new way. Appreciating you and humbled by how God is pleased to literally bring about his redemptive plan in your families and in our world through a unique opportunity that he's given you and not me. What an honor. What a blessing that you have. And what an honor it is for me to, to learn of this. And so as we say, today we're going to, uh, to talk about the wives. And next week we're going to talk about the husbands. This is not a chance for the men to, to turn off their switch and say, okay, tell me, you know, next week, tell me when it's re- relevant to me. This is relevant to you men. This is relevant to you ladies who are not married. This is relevant because it is God's plan and purpose to change us and to cause us to live differently. And so for the men, if you are married, this is so important for you because I want this to change how you look at your wife and treat your wife because of the distinct role that she has in the home. And it's beautiful. And so if we handle this passage unfaithfully, here's what will happen. You'll leave with two applications. If you desire to be a godly wife and a godly woman, submit to your husband and be a doormat and do what he says. And by the way, cut your clothing budget by half. Amen. Yes. However, if I'm unfaithful to God's word, that's what will happen. What will happen? Here's what I believe. If, if I am faithful, if we are faithful to hear what God has for us this morning, um, and I intend to be faithful to expose this passage, the result will be, God willing, is that wives will be honored and admired by us all. So here are a few observations. First, Peter addresses uh, both husbands and wives, and he uses six verses to address wives, and he uses one verse to address husbands. The first observation is that, one, the length of the instruction is not equivalent to the weight of the instruction. The instruction to the woman is not more weighty or important or necessary than the instruction to husbands just because it's a six-to-one ratio. The wives are not merely deserving more instruction and more time to flesh out this argument than men deserve. You'll see in next week that a lot can be said to men in just one verse, and it's pretty weighty. Observation two, it might seem that Peter's instruction unfairly burdened wives and excuse husband, and this also is not the case. By simply addressing wives in this letter, he is honoring them in the church and in the home. The command to wives to be subject to their husbands should never be taken to imply inferiority, lesser importance. Peter affirms the opposite. Wives are joint heirs, co-heirs to the grace of life. Peter is saying, ladies, God desires to work through your life. Your godliness, your submission to him to bring about change in the church change in your home, change in your world, in your government, in your neighborhoods, in your workplace. By merely addressing them, and think about this in the context of a very male-centric society in their time, and by even talking about them, and at good length, Peter is elevating them to a place of honor in the church and dignity, equal in honor and dignity and value to their husbands. Wives have a unique opportunity to model Jesus who submitted to the Father in the plan of redemption even though Jesus was a co-equal and a co-eternal 
to the Father. And yet Jesus was pleased to bring himself under in submission to the Father, even though he was equal to him. Observation three, this passage is not about the submission of women to men in general. This is not a passage about women submit to men in your life. Peter is very clear and he says it twice. Wives, submit to your own husbands. This isn't generally talking about how women should be submissive to men. It is about wives being in a unique relationship with their husband and submitting to their husband. And so this is not about women submitting to men in the world. Okay, women are not told to willfully arrange and order their life under the guidance and leadership of men generally, but under the guidance and leadership of their husband. So that's what this passage is about. And last assumption. The assumption here, last observation, is that women, the women who Peter is addressing are Christian women. Most of them are married to Christian men. And the assumption is that some of these Christian women are married to non-Christian men. So here is who this applies to. If you're married, sometime in your marriage, uh, maybe you became a believer wife, you became a Christian, and yet your husband remains a non-believer. He doesn't embrace your faith, and he doesn't embrace uh, the, your, your hope in Christ, and he even might be bothered at it in time. He even might even uh, uh, scoff at you. He might even ridicule you. He might even rebuke you uh, for trusting in Jesus and thinking that it's uh, stupid and unreasonable. It's, it's, it's talking about that. He's also talking about this. Uh, your husband claims to be a believer, and yet you don't see any fruit in this relationship with Jesus. And so he's a Christian by confession, but you don't see uh, him becoming more like Christ in his life. Third, he's a Christian, but you struggle to submit yourself as his wife under his leadership, in your home, leadership over the home and over your family for a variety of different reasons. Or he's a Christian, but the pattern of his life is characterized by a lack of obedience to God's word. So this can be, this is like, this is, the assumption is that this is for all Christian wives, but uniquely you might find yourself in a situation where it is difficult for you to submit to the leadership of your husband. Peter has great instruction for us. Okay, thanks for letting me get that out of the way. So here, let's dig in. The wife who loves Jesus possesses a mighty weapon for influencing her husband in the gospel and being a witness to the world. So think about this. The the wife possesses a, a powerful weapon to get her husband to do what she wants. And you might be thinking, I don't need the Bible to tell me that. Right? It's not your body. It is the testimony of your life. This powerful weapon, this unique weapon that you have to participate in Jesus' work of of redemption in your home is the testimony of your life. And what are the characteristics of this life? First, these women are holy women who hope in God. Peter does not base his argument uh, and instruction to wives on cultural trends or cultural circumstances. He is not taking into account because of the cultural realities in which you live, submit to your husbands. He talks about holy women who hope in God. And the specific example that he gives is Sarah, Abraham's wife. Sarah is a specific example of godly submission for a wife. She's an example, example to all of wives for how to submit to her husbands, and this is my favorite verse in all the Bible, by calling him Lord. No, I'm just kidding. The example of submission to her husband by calling him Lord, and how is this a demonstration of holiness and hoping in God? 
wow, doesn't this, this seems like heavy-handed. Be like Sarah, who submitted to her husband by calling him Lord. But Lord is not Lord. Lord, little L, is not Lord, big L. There was something that Sarah had in her holiness and her hope in her master, Father in heaven, big L, Lord, that enabled her to submit to Abraham, who was her Lord, little L. And let me explain what this means. The readers would understand that because Sarah was a holy woman who hoped in God, she trusted in God with her whole life as, his, as her big L, Lord. She was able to acknowledge Abraham, the husband whom God had given her, acknowledging him with due respect as her husband that God had placed in, in authority and leadership in her life. The characteristics of a godly woman who hopes in God is that God is her master, not her husband. This is not saying that be like Sarah who made her master her husband. It is be like Sarah who hoped in God as her ultimate and supreme master so she was able to respectfully submit to her earthly master, the little L, the husband in her life that God has given to her. This is what it means to be holy in this passage, to belong to God, to have confidence in who you are because of God's work in your life, to trust in Him and follow Him and have such security in knowing who you belong to that you could joyfully submit to the man who God has placed in your life. In college, you may have called this dating Jesus. Okay? At least that was, that was, the, that was at least the reason that Christian girls gave me for not, date, for not dating me. I, I'm, I'm dating Jesus. Jesus is my master. He is my fiancé, my boyfriend. Um, and this characteristic leads to women who submit to their husbands. A woman who hopes in God a holy women who hope in God with God as their ultimate master. He tells me what to do. He is my guide. He is my authority supremely. And the characteristic of a woman who hopes in God, they are able to submit to their husbands. It causes wives to fill their lives with conduct that is pure and respectful. It causes wives to consider continually, how can I conduct myself how can my conduct with my husband be in a way that is pure and respectful to him? How can I honor him with the way that I dress in public? And we get into that. How can I respect him in, in his leadership position that God has given him in the home to respect him in making those decisions? How can I challenge him respectfully when I disagree with him? How can I give him counsel as a woman with a brain and with intelligence and with wisdom and do it in a respectful way. The root of that conduct, of that good work of this wife, is a hope in God that he is ultimately in control. The confidence, you see, that their greatest, the greatest aim is not to please their husband. A holy, the holy women who hope in God, their greatest aim, their greatest joy, their greatest pursuit is not to make their husband love them but to honor God with their conduct and with their lives. This confidence that this woman has, this strong confidence in the Lord, frees them from winning the, the, the approval of a, of a prospective husband or winning the approval of their current husband by their conduct. Frees them up to respectfully submit to them 
even, even if they are not godly men. The, the wife who is like Sarah is faithful under pressure. Faithful under pressure. And that's the first thing it's good to see through the model of Sarah and the encouragement to you ladies is that there's this faithfulness under pressure. God is my master. My confidence is in him. I will not sin even if my husband leads me to sin. And because my confidence is in my, my God, I can willfully place my life under the care of this man God has put in my life. Number two, the second characteristic of a, of a, of a, a submissive wife is that these women are beautiful. Beautiful. There are ways that the wife, as I mentioned before, there are ways that the wife can influence her husband without a word, Peter says. And it's not what you think. Let me say it another way. Peter does not give instruction for men, uh, instruction to men's physical beauty, because it's commonly agreed upon, at least from the women that I've talked to, <laughs> is that the male body is pretty disgusting. <laughs> Ladies, are we in agreement? It's pretty gross. The male body is pretty gross. The female body, on the other hand, men, can I get an amen? Okay. <laughs> is beautiful. Men are, and this is good for ladies to hear, men have a disposition, a unique bent different from most women that is a disposition towards sexual attraction. And this is not an evil thing. The female body is unique, we are, we are uniquely tuned to see its beauty. And Peter says, don't let your adorning be external, but let, the, let it be the adorning be the hidden person of your heart, the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. The female body is beautiful. And Peter is saying this, he's taking two things, a God-given reality, a God-given reality. Ladies, you know you have power because you are beautiful. And this isn't a joke. This is a reality. You have power because you are beautiful and you could get things done by using your body to get men to like you, to listen to you, to do things that you want. And Peter says this is a God-given reality and then he holds up a cultural distortion of that reality and he, to make a point. And he says the female body is beautiful. And the culture distorts this beauty and uses it to objectify you and to influence people through the use of your body. And Peter says, you don't have to do that. Not even for your husband. Do not use your body to get what you want. Do not use your body to get people to like you. Do not use your body to get your husband to respect you for who you are. Do not use your body to get people to notice you and to love you. This is not just for wives. This is for single women, for girls who are in a relationship with a boyfriend or fiancé. Your body is not to be used for men to love you, to, to, to love you and to appreciate you and to accept you. Your body is not used, should not be used to influence people in your life. The problem for Peter was that here's, you know, in this, in this context, the problem for Peter wasn't in the hair 
or the clothes or the jewelry per se. It was in this. Think of the time that you spend on Pinterest looking at hair and clothes and makeup and styles. Now consider the time you spend doing your hair and doing your makeup and enhancing your beauty. Now consider the time you spend each day on your mental and spiritual strength for all that God has entrusted to you as a daughter of God. That's what he's talking about. He wants to open up the conversation to consider these things. And this, this word adorn is used three times, and it's a really interesting word. We don't use it culturally. It's not relevant. We don't say that, I love what you've adorned yourself with today. <laughs> we do not use this word. But, the, our, this, the, but even this modern translation has maintained this, this word for good purpose. The, the Greek word is, is actually cosmos. Cosmos. We know this word. The cosmos. The, we know the word, right? This is not a trick. It's the, it's the stars and the, the heavens and the, the planets and everything that we see. So the, the stars, and the, the stars and the, in the sky and all the planets, they make up a solar system. And the solar system makes up a galaxy. And you have galaxies, several galaxies, that make up something called clusters. And then you have several hundred clusters that make up something called superclusters. And what do you call this whole thing of all these superclusters put together? The cosmos. Which, I'm sure that applies. The, the cosmos. The cosmos. And sorry, I've been watching a lot of space travel lately. And so this is like fresh in my mind. The Greeks in this time, the Greeks, why this word is used in this way, the Greeks in this time, the readers are Greek. They've influenced um, by the Greek-speaking, uh, the philosophy, and they're Greek-speaking Jews and G Gentiles. They believe that the cosmos in its circular movement was the most pure, most perfect, most beautiful expression of anything around. The cosmos were adorned with beauty, and there was nothing more beautiful than the rhythm of the cosmos. So what does it mean to adorn? Because the cosmos are a sum of all the parts that is this beautiful collection. What does it mean to adorn? Let the sum of your parts say something true about who God is and about your relationship to your husband. So when Peter is saying adorn yourself, adorn yourself, he is saying let the, 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 the sum of all that you are and all that you put together and the collection of all the moving parts in your life and how you, how you put yourself together and how you decorate yourself. Let it all speak of something beautiful, of who you are in God's eyes and who you are as your husband's wife, submitting to him. That's the Greek way of thinking about it. And perhaps here's an easier way to think about it. And when I say this, you're going to say, you should have started with that illustration. It's like setting the table. I walk into your house and the table is set. I can tell who you might be having over or how important that person is, how casual the environment is, what you might be eating, how many courses. You see, if you put together this table, it says something about the content. It says something about what, you, what you're going to do and what you believe. How important this meal is. And Peter singles out hair and jewelry and fine clothing 
Because people in that time displayed wealth in those things. In that time, right? But we don't do that anymore. Not much has changed. We could add a few things to the list probably. Houses, cars, handbags. Sorry, did I go too far? (laughs) Or even your very bodies. Even your very bodies become something that people look at and admire. Peter says that is so powerful. Power should not be used in that way. What is powerful? See, Peter's not speaking against beauty. Don't you see that? If anything, he is bringing our attention to it and acknowledging it that that women are beautiful. He's speaking out against a superficial or scandalous beauty that puts a premium on your body over your heart. The force of this argument is not that women should not look beautiful through clothing and jewelry. The force of this argument is that wives ought to understand the vastly superior value of godliness and the danger of a superficial and shameful sensual fashion that that you might demonstrate to the world around you. He's speaking to the thing that women use to make themselves beautiful to others. What is that thing? It should not be a display of your body, but a display of the internal quality of your godliness and love for God, demonstrated specifically in a gentle and quiet spirit. Men, you have a disposition towards sexual attraction. Ladies need to understand that. To understand this in relationship to submitting to your own husband would be good for you to ask, does this image put my body on display, even unintentionally, for men other than my husband? That's a great question to ask as it's getting hotter outside. As the shorts come up and the shirts come down, and there's, a little mid, there's this little section of clothing on the female body, because the female body is beautiful. The principle is modesty. The principle is respect for your husband. The principle is modesty. And put, what am I putting on, and how does this, what does this preach to the world? Does this preach that I belong to my husband, and you can't admire me the way that my husband can admire me? Because I submit to him as an expression of my ultimate submission to God. This is, and, and Peter says, this is very precious. This is very precious. There's this very wonderful phrase that I don't want to skip over too quickly. It's found at the end of verse 4, which is God, in God's sight, is precious. Very precious. What an amazing, tender phrase. It's such a tender way for Peter, this pastor and church planner, to speak to his sisters in Christ, the women of the church. He's telling them, God thinks that you are beautiful, that you are valuable, that you are honorable, that you have a powerful weapon in his plan of redemption for the world. And it's not because you make yourself beautiful on the outside. I have two daughters, uh, three and a, two and a half and three and a half months. And I'm already thinking, I'm already preparing for it already. My daughter's now still very young. One day, Lord willing, uh, by God's kindness, I will, uh, well, they'll come home one day. Kate will come home and she'll be crying and she'll run to her room. 
and she'll be in there, she'll jump on her bed, and she'll just be in tears. And I'll knock on the door, and she's like, what? And I'll come in, <coughs> and I'll say, Katie, what's wrong, honey? What's wrong? And through her tears, she'll tell me how, how a boy made fun of her, about how she looks, or a girl laughed at her, or a collection of girls were gossiping about her. And if she doesn't say, get out and get mom, and I will say, I'll be able to tell her, I will be able to tell her, honey, who cares? Who cares what they think about you? Because your daddy loves you so much. And she will sit, and, and that won't work. So, so, so that, and that won't work. And it won't work. But my point is, it should work. But it won't work. It won't work, and I know it won't work, but I'm going to tell her anyway. Because it is the most important thing, really. Uh, it should work, because I love her more than those bratty girls and those, and those loser boys. My, my opinion... I hate them already. My opinion, <laughs> this is the absolute truth for my daughters today. And until she gets married, there is no opinion of a man that matters more than mine. And if I think that she is very precious, she needs to build her identity on that. Peter is saying to his sisters in Christ, the world wants to disciple you. But you must let God, your heavenly Father, disciple you and define for you what is pure, what is powerful, what is important, what is precious, what is of supreme value. The world wants to tell you what is valuable. And you're going to be crushed because you're not going to live up to that. Or maybe you will live up to that. And then people will be crushed because they don't live up to you. Peter is saying, don't let the world disciple you and what they feel is valuable. You are precious to the Lord. You are precious to him, and that is the only opinion that matters. And when we see a quiet and gentle spirit that flows from a heart that hopes in God, this is priceless. And this does not mean that women are weak. You can be quiet and gentle and be very dangerous and very courageous as a woman and very influential. Peter says, and lastly, he says, these women, this characteristic is these women are fearless, not frightened by anything. You can be gentle and quiet in your spirit and display before the world and your husband a meek temperament and you could be frightened by nothing. My wife and I have had some thoughtful discussions on this topic of our God-ordained roles in the past uh, throughout our marriage now almost 11 years. And it goes a little like this when she says, when I see your role and your burden as, um, as the leader of our home, and the provider for our family, and uh, as you lead, lead our family and trust in God, I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want that. And I look at her and I say, when I see your role and your burden that God has given you to submit to my leadership, I wouldn't want that. <laughs> this is true. These are conversations. I wouldn't want that for a minute. And you know what that causes us to do? When we recognize these God-given roles and we recognize the burden of them and the need to be godly in them as the husband, as the leader, understanding their wife in a hum humble and loving way and the wife submitting to her, leader, her, her husband as, as an act of submission to God and the man he's, he's, he's placed in her life, it causes us to need God. See, when we look at each other and say, I don't want your life, and I realize that it's difficult, 
uh, it does is it causes us to admit our need to God and to trust in him to faithfully exercise the unique role that he has given to us in the home. He's called us to trust in him. Peter is saying, ladies, when you know that you are holy women who hope in God and therefore you belong to him and you have a hope that is imperishable, when your identity and beauty are not bound in your outward appearance, you will be able to fearlessly submit to your husband with great confidence. Wives, you have an important role, an important part in the church's witness to the world in an urgent time. And at times it may not be easy. It will not be easy. Your husbands may resist you. Others might ridicule you, ridicule you, but God is pleased with you. And with that comes an unconquerable joy and courage. God is pleased. What else? Why else do you need courage? Because submission does not mean agreeing on everything. It is possible to be submissive and to not agree with your husband. And if you notice, there's great exhortation to mothers of daughters in this passage. Peter holds up Sarah as the, the, the mother example for you to follow and says, as her daughters look to her. Isn't this terrific? You are her daughters, he says. You're her children. Moms, if you have daughters... Or even consider the young girls in your church if you don't. Are you setting before them a godly example of beauty that surpasses external beauty? Could your daughter say when she is older, when she's 12, when she's 16, when she's 40 years old, you can say, Mom was stunningly beautiful, but that was not ultimately on display for everyone to see. She had a deeper beauty. She had a deeper power. She had a deeper strength that was untouchable. And she was so beautiful. Yeah, she was hot. Mom was hot. But she had a beauty that she displayed before that beauty to the world to see. That's what we want for our daughters because Peter is saying, daughters, look to your, look to your mother, Sarah, as an example. Your daughters are looking to you and they're saying, what is beautiful? They're looking to the moms. Your daughters are looking at you and saying, Mom, what is pretty? Do you, what are you going to show her? Of course, it's not wrong to show her how to put on makeup and to, to, look, uh, to enhance the beauty that they already have, but are they going to say, this is fun and I like doing this and I like looking pretty in this way, but I know that this isn't where it ultimately rests. Are they going to figure that out by you? They should. Let Sarah disciple you. Ladies, let the women who hope in God disciple you and imitate their beauty. To the women, to the wives here, you possess a mighty weapon. I can't say this enough. You possess a mighty weapon for influencing the world for Christ. It is not a lesser weapon. It is not a duller or weaker weapon than the men. It is a mighty weapon, and it's not in your looks. It is in the testimony of your life. And this biblical, enduring biblical principle must be applied at an urgent time in our lives. When a premium is put on the body and our expression of how women present themselves physically, by the strength of God's grace provided to you, you are able to model Christ and the gospel in your home who submitted to his Father in his plan of redemption. What makes you so beautiful is not what you display to the world, but what Christ has displayed in you through his Son. 
the work of his love and acceptance and redemption of your sins. You're beautiful. And I love you. And we love you. And we're so thankful for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to honor our wives and the women in our family. I pray that they are honored. I pray that they are encouraged and even convicted. I pray that we would all look to you as members of your family, humbled, and as we see the unique opportunities you've given to us in the home and in the church and in society, we would say, this is hard. Lord, would you help us? Would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us in our mind and heart and in our bodies? I pray that, that, that our women, as beautiful externally as they are, that they would increase in an internal beauty that screams loudly of your love, of a confidence and a fearlessness and a hope that they have in you. And I pray that as the watching world would look at the ladies in our church, that they would say, you truly are beautiful. And it's a beauty that I don't see a lot. It's a content heart. It's a quiet spirit. It's a courage and a fearlessness that is unmatched. I pray that they would be those women. And I pray that the men here and husbands here would support and honor our women towards that end. In Jesus' name, amen.